It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, let's get right into Monday, shall we? Give it both barrels, get it in the ankles, send it to the treatment table, let it know we're there. I'm Jim Salverson, Marley Anderson on the Football Social Daily podcast today. Hello, Marley. Hello, guys. Yep, ready to stick it in the mixer on Monday morning. (laughs) Got Noel McCorn alongside him. You right, now? I'm very good. This is the Vinnie Jones podcast of the week, by the sounds of it. <laughs> We're going straight into it on a Monday. Full, full energy, both barrels. We're going to wrap up the weekend's Premier League action in a bit on the podcast. Carlo Ancelotti, no doubt, raising more than just one quizzical eyebrow as Everton dropped points at home to lowly Fulham. Can Scott Parker save the Cottagers from relegation? We'll get onto that shortly on the podcast. There's a couple of games tonight from two London teams who are both chasing European places as well. One kind of expected in Chelsea, the other maybe a bit more unexpected with West Ham. The former play a Wilsonless Newcastle, whilst the latter play another team fighting relegation in Sheffield United. We'll pick our winners from those games in a bit, and the lads are going to pick their heroes and villains from the weekend's action too. But before we kick on, I want to see some reviews on the podcast today, please. It's been ages since anyone said anything nice about the show or told us how great we are. So just slide into our reviews. Share the love. It was Valentine's Day yesterday. I don't think we're getting enough love. So give us a review on the podcast. Apple, Spotify, however you listen. We'll read your thoughts. And if you say something particularly nice, we'll give you a shout out on the podcast as well. So get the reviews in this week. But first, let's start with a little quiz, boys. Here's your quiz question, start for 10. Who was Prime Minister the last time Fulham won a league game away at Everton? John Major. John Major, says Niall. Okay, do you want to have a guess, Marley? Um, I will go for the worst woman in history, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> You're both wrong. It's a trick question because... Fulham have never won a league game at Everton. It was their first ever victory in the league at Goodison Park yesterday. So the answer is actually Boris Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The answer is Boris Johnson. Anyway, Everton nil, Fulham two. Did you see this one coming, Niall? Um... Do you know what? I don't want to say that I did because I don't think that would be fair because I absolutely didn't predict that Fulham would win. But on the preview show on Saturday morning on Football Social Daily... We did discuss this game and we discussed that there's something about Everton sometimes that off the back of a big result, they'll sometimes go into the next game or another game that you'd probably expect them to win with the form and the players that they've got at the moment. Yet they just don't get the job done. Uh, And I think Marley can attest to that probably with the way that Everton played against Newcastle United a couple of weekends ago, at least at the the start of the month, where I think Newcastle uh, ended up beating them 2-0, albeit I think that was at St James's, but still, you'd have expected Everton in the form that Newcastle were in and in the form that they were in to have gone to St James's Park and beat them on that occasion, that wasn't the case, they lost two goals to nil. Um, So there's always that strange feeling with Everton that for some reason against the bigger sides this season, like I'm thinking Manchester United where Calvert-Lewin pulled one back last minute to secure a 3-3 draw, I mean, they've 
they've performed really well against Tottenham in the FA Cup. They beat them 5-4 midweek and performed really well, aside from conceding four, obviously. Um, but against Fulham, you'd think on paper, Everton are in good form. They've got a good manager and good players this season, but yet they've gone and lost 2-0. So I wouldn't say I saw it coming particularly in terms of it being such a, a comfortable victory for Fulham, but certainly I had a few concerns over Everton, whether they could kind of alleviate that issue that seems to have come they've come across in recent weeks and months when it comes to facing sides lower down the table what I thought was interesting was what Scott Parker was saying after the game he was saying we've been playing this way for the last 13-14 games eventually the tide was going to turn um, I'm not sure how much I believe that. They have been playing the better of all of the sides down in the bottom three. Um, Sheffield United have picked up a little bit since they um, surprisingly beat Manchester United a few midweeks ago. And I just think Fulham, in general, have played the better football out of the bottom three sides, West Brom, Blades and themselves. Um, they keep drawing games though, Jim. I think, along with Southampton, they were the side with the worst run of games without a victory. Doesn't mean they haven't been picking up points. I think they've drawn six or seven of those 12 or 13 games that uh, Scott Parker was referring to so so yeah I mean I think it's fair enough for Scott Parker to say well finally we've managed to find it in front of goal and uh, and we perform really well I think Fulham did play well but it's not anything out of the ordinary they've played well for maybe as he says the last five six weeks they just haven't been able to get results and that's the ruthlessness and cutthroat nature of this league the Premier League is that you can still be a decent side and get whooped every week I mean look at Norwich City last season I don't think anyone's saying they played ugly football, they were horrible to watch, they just weren't good enough and they finished bottom of the pile. They had decent players, I mean Tim Pookie's a good player, Campwell's attracting interest, you think of the likes of Lewis and Godfrey and Aaron's all players who have attracted interest from other clubs, some of them have got their moves, um, Emi Buendia has been linked with Arsenal in recent transfer windows, I mean this is just using Norwich as an example, but they were nowhere near good enough in terms of quality to stay up in the Premier League. I think we might see a similar story with Fulham, now yeah, probably Scott Parker could try and drag them out of it and I think he feels they're playing well enough to do so but that gap the gap is decent it's a decent cushion that um, Brighton Burnley and the like have got um, between themselves and the bottom three and it's hard to see how Fulham are going to make that ground up if they keep winning games like against Everton like they did yesterday then they've got a real chance but I mean I, I still personally can't see it to be honest with you so yeah, a little bit of a surprise that Fulham won, but at the end of the day, I think that's something Everton need to look at in closer detail. Why do they keep dropping points to sides that they should really be beating? We'll come back to that thought shortly about who might stay up from those bottom three. But as you say, a comfortable win for Fulham in the end, both in terms of scoreline and in terms of performance. They definitely had the better of the game. The big difference was the fact they scored goals. And in terms of personnel, that came down to Josh Madger, former Sunderland player if you've watched the Sunderland Till I Die documentary would you have spotted that he had they had high hopes from at Sunderland and he ended up going to Bordeaux in a move mostly planned by his agent he's come back to the UK on loan now playing in the Premier League made his Premier League debut scored both goals Marley can he be the difference because neither of the neither of the goals you'd look at and go that was pure individual brilliance it was kind of both right place right time would be more difficult for him to miss but on the other hand you kind of need that player there to score those goals and Fulham haven't had that recently so can he be a success and can he be the difference for Fulham uh, they'd, they'd certainly hope so because I think the one area where Fulham have, have struggled this season is, is up front I think for me Fulham's turning point when came in the season where they started to look like a good team was when everyone got into the team, all the new signings, and they started to gel a little bit, um, particularly at the back when uh, Joe, Joe Kim Anderson came in, the, the lad from Leon, and he really showed them up at the back. And then it was just a case of, you know, finding who can score you a goal every week. And Cavalero had a few games where I think he scored three or four in, in five or six games, and he looked okay, but never looked like a striker. Um, and then Marges came in out of pretty much nowhere. Um, since joining from Bordeaux, I think it is on loan, um, and he's you know last night he scored goals that strikers score, and I think you know they weren't amazing goals, but they're hard goals to score because they're hard to get into that position. You have to have the instinct to follow a shot in. Like so many players will not not follow that shot in. If you play a winger up front, there is mm. no chance he is following that shot in, expecting it come to come back off the goalkeeper or the post or whatever whatever happens and, and Marja got that last night and I don't know too much about him I've never seen this this the documentary about Sunderland because 
I can't think of any way worse to spend a few hours, to be honest, than watching <laughs> some of our Sunderland. But, you know, he had the sense to get out. He realised they were an absolute, you know, mess of a club and, and wanted to leave and, and not stick around on broken promises and things like that. And he wanted to go and say, right, well, I I back myself. And I think he got I think he got a fair bit of stick for it at the time because mm, people were kind of like... He was like, top Whoa. scorer in League One at the time, Marley, actually, as well. And well, Sunderland's top scorer. So they, they felt a bit betrayed by him leaving. Yeah, well... I, I understand that to a point, um, but also, you know, he, he had a plenty of interest around him, you know what I mean, didn't he? So he had mm, he had plenty yeah. of, of options and, you know, possibly winning League One, which Sunderland haven't done three years later. Um, you know, if he was still at Sunderland, what would he have done? He would have, he'd, he'd be a Just guy who everybody later, would, yeah, yeah who everyone would, be, everyone would be saying, oh, can he do it in the championship? Can he, well, well. You know the Premier League's too much of a step up for him, but he took his shot, he took his chances. He went to France, and then he's ended up back in England, bypassed the Championship, which was the best Sunderland we're ever going to get to, and they didn't even get there, as as it turned out. Um, so yeah, if he if he can keep scoring, the place is there for him in the team. I think Mitrovic hasn't done too much this season. Um, I think he's only got two goals in over a thousand minutes now, so um, he's he's not exactly. Un, undroppable in the team, so it should be Marge's place to lose now. And if he can, um, if he can carry on chipping in with a few goals, then then fair mm. enough. He couldn't really miss though with the goals, could he? <laughs> with the goals that he scored. Well, yeah, well, he gets, he but gets as Marley says, you're not yeah. to be there. Mm. And he had a couple of other chances in the game as well, where he got into similar positions and just didn't quite make the finish. But he's now scored as many goals as he did for Bordeaux in the first half of the season when he made 17 appearances, only scored nine goals for Bordeaux in his entire career in France, and that was 45 appearances. So yeah. it's not like he's got this pedigree for goal scoring. I wonder whether the long-term plan, and you do see this in football sometimes, when a player moves from an English club to a European club in mm-hmm. order to then facilitate a move back to the English club in a few seasons' time. One of the long-term plan was for him to come back to the Premier League and maybe mm. he never quite felt settled in Bordeaux. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I don't think when he left Sunderland, like Marley says, that he was thinking, oh, I can't wait to play for Fulham in two years' time. I'm not really <laughs> no. sure that that was his thinking. <laughs> a fair point. Um, t- to be honest, I think that, as Marley said, he took his chance and you know, a move from League One, even though Sunderland are a massive hitter in League One, you know, to move from the third division of English football to the top tier of French football which um, I'm not sure if it actually counts as one of Europe's top five leagues. I think it does just creep in in fifth. But, you know, you're thinking of uh, of that and playing against the likes of Neymar uh, and Mbappe at PSG and playing against sides like Marseille, these historical European clubs. Um, it's, it's a much bigger move than, it, you know, the, from League One to there than, like Marley says, maybe a mid-table championship club um, who uh, who might likely have not suited his style of play. So... Yeah, I guess that there could be arguments for styles of play and stuff like that. Um, but, but you know, Fulham needed some firepower. They needed something different. As Marley said, Mitrovic wasn't really working out for them. And it's a shame, really, because I like Mitrovic as a striker. But every time he's stepped foot in the Premier League, he just hasn't seemed to be able to deliver in the same way as he has done mm. in the Championship. I just wonder whether people looking at this result yesterday and seeing that Josh Marger has scored two goals if they really think that he's going to fire Fulham to safety, because I'm not convinced. And that doesn't mean that he's a bad player. I just don't think that, is he quite ready to do that? If he does, he'd be a cult hero immediately. He'd be an absolute There's Fulham no legend. evidence to suggest he is, is there? There's exactly. no to suggest he can do that. Off the stats that you've said, and off of what I've seen of him in League One, where he was very impressive in, for Sunderland, I have to say, for that first half of the season in League One, where he scored bagfuls of goals. I, even with the goals he scored yesterday, Marley's right. He gets into good positions. His movement off the ball is very, very good. But I don't know. I, I don't. I can't see him firing in another ten goals to keep Fulham in the Premier League. I just can't. I just can't see it personally. Um, I'm sure he'll bag a couple, but to score two on your debut like that is going to fill him with confidence, and I'm sure he mm. will grab a few more. But whether he'll be the signing that changes their season, I think it's too early to tell after just one game. Let's turn our attentions back to Everton because Carlo Ancelotti said after the game that his team just couldn't match Fulham's intensity, which is probably a fair shout. But how much of that is down to what was an epic FA Cup game versus Spurs midweek Marley? Because they would have been feeling it in their legs. And how much of it is to do with Everton just maybe not doing what has been expected of them this season. I think most people expected Carlo Ancelotti's arrival and the players he brought in to guarantee maybe 
certainly European football, we have not a top four place, but it's not quite happened yet. Do Everton fans just need to be a little bit more patient? Um, I think it's always going to take time for that consistency to come. Um, when you're under a new manager and you're trying to, you know, you've got, you set yourself different goals for the season, you're expecting to try and get into that top six and all the rest of it. I think, you know, it's there's two challenges. There's one challenge where you've got to compete with everybody. Um, and they've had some results this season, which proves they can on their day. They're a really good team um, and they can cause anyone uh, problems in the league. But then the second challenge is the consistency and beating the, beating the teams you're expected to beat. Um, and they've struggled like this season, like Niall mentioned before, they couldn't beat Newcastle away. Um, we've beat them twice this season. Um, we've done them both times at Goodison and then at St. James's. Um, and then, you know, Fulham at the weekend. And there's been a few other dodgy results as well, but that's that's only going to come with time. I think, you know, it's not something to do with are they good enough because they've proved that they've got the level to, to go and hurt, hurt teams and, and, you know, they've got the quality to unlock teams like James Rodriguez, Calvert-Lewin's goals are, are massive. Um, and they, they missed him at the weekend, Calvert-Lewin. They didn't have a focal point up front. I think Richarlison is probably half the player you, you get from the left wing um, when you play him up front. Um but that's yeah, that's no real, no real issue with his. You know they've got a fairly thin squad in terms of strikers, and you know they've only got Josh King to bring in. And you know anyone who's listened to this podcast in the last year or so is, knows my thoughts on Josh King. I just don't think he's that good. Um, hence why he's only signed a six-month deal to the end of the season, on, despite it being permanent, which is weird. Um, Missed a good chance as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I mean Everton, are, you know. I think a massive part of the their defeat at the um, at the weekend was was the uh, the two hour uh, goal fest that was the Spurs game because you know I think in, maybe in a normal season with with a preseason and things like that um, and a little bit more spaced out they could have gone again they could have picked themselves up and been a bit more fitter and matched Fulham's intensity but um, I think people should have maybe seen this coming a little bit because Fulham are. Um, good enough to to really demand. You've got to be good to beat them. Like it's they're not as bad as their league position suggests. I don't think they they play properly. Mm. They press high. They they pass it around. They dominate possession. Um, I think they had more possession than Everton yesterday, or they did when I last looked at it. Anyway, the stats. Um, but they were they they're good. They're they're hard to beat. I mean Chelsea. I remember watching them for ninety minutes against Chelsea. Um, just before Frank Lampard got sacked and. It was only a, I think it was an eighty or eighty something minute goal from Mason Mount that that killed them off. But they had plenty of chances to um, to win that game, and it was like a sort of a yardstick of like you know you can they can compete with teams. So to see them turn over Everton isn't that much of a surprise, I don't think. We've said several times that Fulham are probably better than their league position. Anyone want to say it again before we move on? <laughs> just to just to double check because I think that's what we need to talk about because there's three teams down there at the bottom who have all started to pick up reasonable results recently. Fulham, Sheffield United, West Brom, all have picked up wins that maybe at the start of the season we wouldn't have expected them to do. We said a few weeks ago they're all nailed on for relegation, that those three bottom places are pretty much decided, but there's still 42-odd points to play for this season. Are any of them going to get out of it, Niall? Out of those three, are any Mm. of them going to find safety? And if so, who? No. Still nailed on? I think they're all down. I think they're all down. At the moment, they're all down. I can't see. I mean, the the telling thing, I think, will be if Burnley get a result midweek against Fulham, because that's their next game, isn't it? Fulham against mm. Burnley midweek, Wednesday. Huge, huge game for Fulham. If Fulham win, that drags Burnley a little bit closer to them. At the moment, um, Burnley have a uh, eight-point gap in 16th between themselves and the dotted line Fulham in 18th Newcastle a uh, seven point gap and you know Newcastle have won two of their last five games um, and obviously they're missing Callum Wilson so it remains to be seen how important that is to them I think I saw a mad statistic that Callum Wilson had scored or contributed to 60% of Newcastle's league goals this season which is just remarkable so we'll see how much of an impact that makes with him missing Um but again, they've looked brighter as well with this new coach, Graham Jones, coming in. So I think after Wednesday, we'll get a clearer indication of whether Fulham really are going to be able to drag themselves out of it. Because, you know, West Brom's next game, ironically, is against Burnley as well. So, I mean, I think this next two weeks could really set the scene for the bottom of the Premier League. I personally can't see any of them getting out of it 
right now. Um, if you think about Fulham's uh, last five games, a draw nil-nil with Brighton, um, they should have probably won that. A draw 2-2 with West Brom, in which they had loads of chances in the first half, they should have won that, and they ended up falling behind and having to come back and draw. Um, losing to Leicester's no shame, and drawing with West Ham's no shame. So, you know, the results have improved the last, th- the last couple of games for Fulham, but... I think that game against Burnley's the big one, but for now, I can't see any of those three, Fulham, West Brom or Sheffield United, getting out of trouble. That picture might become a little bit clearer after tonight's games because two potential relegation candidates face two potential European contenders. It's West Ham versus Sheffield United and it's Chelsea versus Newcastle. We'll talk about those matches next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. There are two Premier League games kicking off on Monday night. We're going to look at both of them. Chelsea versus Newcastle on the way shortly. But first, let's talk about the Carlos Tevez derby. West Ham versus Sheffield United. A potential relegation candidates. Eh? What? <laughs> Carlos Tevez never played for Sheffield United, did he? No, he didn't. But don't you remember the third-party oh, ownership? He's, it was, missed, it he's was... missed the joke, hasn't he, Jim? Yeah. Do we have to explain I thought this? it was Man United. I thought it would be Man United. Sure. That was well, clever. No. It was a nice little clever link and Niles yeah. just stamped all over it. <laughs> <laughs> but if Niles didn't get it, maybe other people won't either. So um, Carlos Tevez scored the goal that kept West Ham oh, in the league, that sent, sent, sent Sheffield down, United okay, in see. the league. And then there was deemed to be an illegal transfer because of the third party ownership West Ham ended up paying I, now. I think it was 17 million pounds as a settlement to Sheffield United for their relegation so there we go thanks for all over that now <laughs> let's talk about the game you could have just said the the two teams that hate each other because one sent the other down with an illegal player derby how about that let's just talk about the game instead I mean when you look at this game, Marley, this is the kind of game we said we don't really fancy Sheffield United's chances of getting out of that relegation zone. But if they are going to get out of that relegation zone, and I know West Ham are doing all right in the league, but it still feels like the type of game that Sheffield United need to win if they're going to creep up the table. Yeah, it does. Um, I, you know, I, I say fairly often, you can't pick and choose what games you try and win. Um, Sheffield United will have to try and win every game they're in and West Ham as as good as they're playing at the minute um, West Ham and West Ham they never you know you never get what you expect from West Ham <laughs> do you? you you know you can see them fifth in the league no and if somebody said to you tonight Sheffield United got to beat West Ham or to anyone you, you'd say yeah I can see that like you wouldn't be like no chance there's no chance West Ham are going to beat uh, are going to lose to Sheffield United last uh, tonight it's not a, a cut-and-dry thing. Um, I think the way Sheffield United are playing is much better um, ever since they um, got that monkey off the back and beat Newcastle um, a few, well, a couple of months ago now. Um, and, yeah, they could they could easily f- cause problems tonight. I think a lot of it depends on whether Mikhail Antonio is fit. I think, I think he will be. Um, but whether he can lead that line properly and, and give Sheffield United something to think about um, up there is uh, is another thing. So um, I think it'll be a tight one. I think it might be like one nil either way. But I can see. I, can, I'm, I honestly mm. don't know. I'd like to say, you know, West Ham will beat them because West Ham are fifth in the league or whatever they are. But you know, um, I've I've been I've been burned by trying to predict what West Ham are going to do too many times in the past, and I'm sure you have as well, Jim. I think you're spot on and I think a lot of it depends on Mikel Antonio who faces a late fitness test. He doesn't really have an injury as such. He's suffering with fatigue, which is never an easy one to manage because obviously for a Premier League player. Well, well Mental, he, isn't it? he's he's playing as a lone striker and the only striker in the squad. So, I mean, lone strikers have to work really hard. He's got hamstrings that are made of quavers, as you like to say, on a regular basis, Marley. So it's (laughs) one of those things that you've got to kind of manage. But if he doesn't play, Niall, I don't know what happens because Yarmolenko is out at the moment for West Ham. He went off against Manchester United with an ankle injury, I think it was. There isn't really any other options up front. So I guess... Does David Moyes play a false nine? Do they have the personnel to play a false nine? Do they have the ability to play a false nine? Does David Moyes know what a false nine is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you never seen Marouane Fellaini? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really seem to fit, does it? 
I tell you what, if Mikhail Antonio doesn't play due to fatigue, it might have something to do with the fact it was Valentine's Day yesterday and he was preaching on social media that he has a willy bigger <laughs> than his heart. Um, so I don't know whether that's got anything to do with it, but still. Um, <laughs> no, listen, David Moyes knew what was go- he was getting into in the January window when he took that risk. And he said he was happy with playing Mikhail Antonio as a lone striker for the rest of the season. And everyone said, as soon as it ticked over to the 2nd of February and the window was closed... Everyone said, well, they just need to keep him fit. And that's the biggest issue with Mikhail Antonio. You know, the the hamstring quavers and whatever you want to say is an issue. There's no doubt about it. He's played his entire West Ham career. Much like Andy Carroll. You know, when Andy Carroll has played for West Ham in the past, um, you know, he was very, very useful. But he spent most of the time on the treatment table. And it feels very similar with Mikhail Antonio. Both, Mm. I think, are excellent players and, and decent Premier League players, no doubt about it. But they just can't stay fit. Um, so I think that is an issue for um, for David Moyes, no doubt, but not one that he's not expecting. I'd like to think that you know a manager of David Moyes' experience would know what to do in the situation that Mikhail Antonio gets injured because he did put all of his eggs in that basket in the transfer window by opting not to sign um, another striker. And I think all the fans were crying out for it, all the pundits were crying out for it, and David Moyes went, no, I'm going to stick to my guns. And I think this is a level of trust that he's got in Mikel Antonio to do the job for West Ham through the middle. And he's done a decent enough job the last two seasons. I don't think anyone can begrudge the performances of Antonio in that time frame. But I still feel that David Moyes might live to regret that not getting another striker in. Um, it, it, obviously, they're massively light up front. Um, but, you know, Socek's been unbelievable in scoring goals from midfield. And maybe that's where they're relying on picking up a couple of goals because... You know, they've managed to find goals from other areas in the absence of strikers already this season. So, you know, the, the idea to sell Alaire and not replace him and the idea that Antonio can stay fit between now and the end of the season, I think that, you know, they're, they're dangerous ideas to be playing with in the Premier League, particularly when West Ham have the chance of European football for the first time since Slaven Bilic was at the club. So, you know, it... it it remains to be seen how they approach this game tonight. I mean, Sheffield United have conceded plenty of goals this season. They've had issues scoring goals themselves. So you'd like to think with the way that West Ham are playing this year that they should be able to pick off Sheffield United. But like Marley says, there's no guarantees of West Ham. It's just the way things go. I don't know who these, who he's going to play in a false nine. If Yarmolenko is out, that is an issue because I like Yarmolenko. But then again, he, he, he's useful cutting in off the right, isn't he? So, Which is very predictable now. Yeah, it is predictable, but, you know, sometimes it's hard to stop. I mean, you can look at players. I mean, it's almost predictable what Ronaldo's going to do and what Messi's going to do, but they're so good at it, you can't stop them. Mm. You know, it's, 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 some players are predictable, but they're just so good at their craft that it's impossible to stop them. So, I mean, whether the young lad, Jim, the young striker who came um, on f- in the cup I forget the other week. I forget back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he, is he I still... Don't think he's- He's still at the club. He's not particularly rated. I don't think he's. Okay. I mean, he's not that young. He's 23, um, and he's been knocking around the reserves for a, a long time. He was only brought in because of the other young lad who is rated, whose surname I can't pronounce, Mipo, something or other. Is um, he who played at the weekend and didn't do particularly well against Manchester United? I think he's the he's the great white hope, but mm. it still feels a little bit ahead of his time to be playing. It is, it's so you don't fancy him? You don't fancy him coming in, Jim? If if Antonio and Yarmolenko aren't fit and you don't really have any other choice, would you rather just another first-team player go into the false nine or would you give this young really lad know. a chance against the side who are bottom of the league with 11 points? I don't think he did particularly well against Manchester United. I think it's either him or... I mean, you, like you say, Suchek could probably lead the line, but then you lose leave the lead the line, but then you lose him out of midfield, and it looks like with that Gab- um, a bonger's injury, Declan Rice is going to have to go back into could you put Bowen position in centre forward, Jared Bowen centre forward, and then bring on Lanzini instead. Potentially, I think he did it for Hull, um, so I think he could play there. I think Lingard's another option as well. Maybe you play him in kind of that false nine position. It's certainly something that David Moyes mentioned when he brought him in, that he could maybe be the, the alternative focal point of an attack. But yeah, it's not going to be an easy one. I, I, I think this game has got nil-nil written all over it, just because I can't see West Ham scoring without Antonio, and I can't see Sheffield United scoring full stop, because they've got 15 goals this season. They've got Lise Mousset back in the starting lineup. He's fit again, Marley. Is that going to be enough to get him a couple of goals? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Moose Moose is one of them strikers isn't he that plays a lot of games doesn't score a lot of goals compared to the amount of games he plays um, I think he went on a little hot streak last season and he got sort of 
I don't know, like four or five in his in like six or seven, and he looked like he'd he'd broke that that seal type of thing. But then I think he got injured and he sort of went back to square one from there. Um, but no, I think they'll probably probably go with uh, McBurney and McGoldrick, and I think they'll do what they do. They'll be hard to play against for ninety minutes, but they don't provide the biggest goal threat. I think probably the the guy who can nick them a goal is Billy Sharp coming on for twenty minutes at the end at the age of you know, 308 and, you know, <laughs> coming on and scrapping in one because he just knows where to be in the box. So I think that's where the um, where the danger might come from and it's the, the ancient old knees of Billy Sharp coming on. But <laughs> they've got to they've got to find that, that man who can score them a goal, I think, Sheffield United, because, you know, I think they got... Was it West Brom the last game and they scored? Uh, they beat them 3-2 and it was kind of three scrappy goals that they ended up sort of... Um, you know, putting in, and it was kind of like those scrappy goals don't come every week. You've got to find other ways of scoring as well as just winning a, a goal mouth scramble because not everyone's going to be as bad as West Brom at clearing the ball. Mm. Um, so yeah, West Ham a bit more organised defensively, and I probably agree with the fact that I don't think it's going to be a goal fest. Do you reckon European qualification is a step too far for West Ham, Nile at this stage? They've been in and around the places all season pretty much, but it feels like that thin squad is starting to thin even more, picking up those injuries and those niggles. So are we going to see them slipping down the table? I'm not sure because this has been a weird season and you look at yesterday's result, we've just spoken about it, Everton losing 2-0 to Fulham. I mean, Everton would have looked at this as an opportunity to, you know, kind of make some ground on West Ham. who have got two points, um, uh, two points better off than Everton, albeit having played a game more, but... West Ham have played the same amount of games as Chelsea and have the same points as Chelsea. Uh, and they also have an identical record over the last five games, having won three, lost one and drawn one. So, you know, let's not forget that Liverpool have played a game more than West Ham. 24 games are only a point ahead and they're fourth. So there's no reason why West Ham United can't mm. try and attack the top four. It will certainly be exciting. I mean, whether they finish in the top four at the end of the season is another question, but there's no reason they shouldn't go for it. Um, you know, like I say at the start of every season, every side should aim to finish as high as you can. I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean, wh- why why would West Ham not have aimed to finish as high as they can now? You know, this is what I didn't understand about Manchester United when they were in the title race, then all of a sudden out of it. They were like, oh, well, well we never really wanted to win the league this year. It's like, well, you're Manchester United, why not? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's one of those <laughs> things which I never understand. Like, if you're in a position like West Ham are in, why not go for top four? And it's natural. Man City fans still do this, right? They are four, five, six, seven points clear at the top of the Premier League table, right? They've won 15 games in a row and they still feel that they're going to f*** up somehow because that's just ingrained in the nature of their club, supporting Manchester City over the years. They're still mm. nervous that they're not going to end up top of the pile. I think West Ham are very similar. You're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment, Jim, I think as a fan base. You don't want to get too overexcited because it's just inevitably it's the hope that that gets you, the hope that kills you. So, you know, top four is still very much in the question for West Ham United, let alone, um, you know, finishing in the top seven or eight. Um, There's a real chance of European football. I mean, look at the way that Tottenham Hotspur have tailed off. You've got a three-point gap to them. Everton's next game's Man City. Villa's next game's Leicester. Um, And then, obviously, you've got Tottenham, who are on a terrible run of form coming up after that soon. So, you know, there's a real possibility that West Ham United could finish in the top seven quite comfortably by the end of the season if they can carry on the trajectory that they're on. Whether that's impacted by injuries and the lack of Antonio and the like, we'll have to wait and see. But I don't see any reason why West Ham shouldn't be excited about a potential European finish. It would take a bit of a capitulation for them to drop down the table which West Ham have always got in their locker. Full of capitulation <laughs> is their locker. Fortune's always hiding. Another team looking at those top four places are Chelsea, particularly after their results in recent weeks. Uh, Thomas Tuchel unbeaten in his Chelsea tenure. They face your team Newcastle tonight, Marley. Now, there's been a load of early criticism mm-hmm. of Tuchel since he came into Chelsea for his lack of attacking flair. But coming up against Newcastle... Is this an excuse to take the brakes off a little bit and go for it and maybe grab some goals? Well, well, do you know what? Because everybody's been sort of saying, you know, they're a bit goal shy, they're a bit, they're a bit boring, they're a bit passy, pass heavy. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Tuchel went out and said, "Tell you what, lads, let's go and absolutely kill these black and white lot tonight," because <laughs> um, everyone's starting to criticise me a little bit and say, mm, you know, do they are they a bit toothless? 
Um, I think they've won all the games that they've won since Tuchel came in by one goal. Um, mm. Yeah, so I, I am a bit worried that the floodgates are going to open because they are going to have 75% possession. Uh, we're not a team that will try and um, dominate the ball kind of thing. And we're also a team without no no focal point, no no teeth in attack, no, no danger without Callum Wilson, which is uh, a massive, massive issue. So we've got... Set Maximan back, which is great. Um, but if they keep him quiet and they keep Almiron quiet, then um, then it could be a, a long night. I think I'm not massively looking forward to watching it, um, especially with Fulham. Are you winning. still worried about relegation with Callum Wilson being out now and he's out for a few weeks? Mm-hmm. Results have been better recently. You're just above that relegation zone. Are you worried that a couple more results and you're going to get sucked into that battle still? Because it felt like things were turning around slowly. Yeah, when we when we beat Everton and Southampton, I was I was for the first time not as worried as I had been, and then Wilson got injured and um, I was a bit more worried, and then Fulham beat Everton and I was a little bit more worried, and Burnley won and I was a bit more worried, and then I looked at Fulham's next three games, um, and yeah, now I am worried because Fulham uh, in the next three. As we were saying before, they've got Burnley uh, next midweek. Then they've got Sheffield United at the weekend. Then Crystal Palace the weekend after that. And the gap, the gap is only seven points. If they take nine points from those games, or even seven, they'll be above us um, in seventeenth, and we'll be eighteenth. So, yes, I am. I am still worried. Um, I think these next three games are absolutely massive because as those games, as Fulham have got those three, um, we've got Chelsea tonight. Then we've got Man United, and then we've got Wolves at home. Um, before West Brom away um, so it's a really big time of the season I think this is where you make or break what is going to happen because if we win you know, if we can sneak a win in our next two games and Fulham don't win uh, one of their next two games I think it's it's back to where we were I, wasn't, I won't be as worried but when you take out like you said 60% of our goals I think Wilson's goals have earned us something like 12 or 13 points this season We've only got 22 of the buggers anyway, something like that. Um, 25, sorry, 25 points. So Wilson's goals have been practically half of that uh, all season. So, I, yeah, I am I am worried because we've now got to go through the next five or six games with either Gale, Carroll or Joel Linton, and they haven't really got too many goals between them. I think Thomas Tuchel certainly is going to want to tear Newcastle a new one, given the way he's been speaking (laughs) recently. I mean, he he clearly is taking the criticism that he's being defensive personally because he's talked about his team's ambition. And you look at the players that Chelsea have at their disposal in terms Mm -hmm. of attacking options, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Oliver Giroud, Tammy Abraham, Timo Werner, uh, Kai Havertz, Christian Pulisic. Uh, Am I missing anyone? Is that pretty much... You've got those... yeah, so you've got you've got those front three options, and we saw in the cup a few of those fringe players maybe getting more of an opportunity, like Tammy Abraham. Do you think Tuchel's gonna roll the dice a little bit here and maybe bring some more of those fringe players in to replace the likes of Werner, who just aren't scoring at the moment? I really don't know. I mean, Thomas Tuchel's been fascinating to watch for me because I've actually really enjoyed his press conferences and what he's said and the demeanour of him and and the manner in which he speaks and how he talks about what his plans are for the future of Chelsea. But I'm finding it really hard to unpick what he's going to do, particularly in terms of personnel. Um, Because, you know, you think about how Ben Chilwell's performed since he's arrived at Stamford Bridge from Leicester in the summer. He's been one of their better signings. I mean, it's fair to say, I think the other few signings that they've made aside from Thiago Silva on a free have flopped um Ziyech Tuchel's been saying that Ziyech needs to learn how to play his style of football and that he's not quite adapting to it so he needs a bit more time on the training ground so I can't see him coming in starting against Newcastle obviously he knows a little bit more about Werner and Havertz having been a coach in the German league for a number of years before joining PSG and he would have obviously kept a close eye on those two German lads so I think there's higher hopes for them in terms of adapting to a style of play, whatever that style of play may be. It's definitely possession-based. I don't think that Chelsea have any problems in keeping the ball against Newcastle um, in tonight's game. But in terms of actual who he picks for tonight's game, I have no idea. I'll be totally honest. I have absolutely no idea. Ben Shilwell is kind of, like I said just a moment ago, him and... Um, Marcos Alonso have kind of rotated in those wing-back positions. Um, Chilwell came off, I think, after about an hour 
of the last game and he was looking a little bit confused that he was being brought off and Tuchel seems to love N'Golo Conte who's kind of dropped off in terms of his form in the last two seasons so in answer to your question I really don't know who he's going to pick tonight I mean I I guess that's the joy of having such a large squad like Chelsea have got and they've got talented players all over the field so listen they've won the last three games in a row but they've won them all by a pretty close margin they beat Burnley 2-0 but then they beat Spurs 1-0 and beat Sheffield United 2-1 so it's not like they've absolutely blown any teams away and we said this the other day on the podcast that maybe we're just waiting for a glass ceiling moment for someone to get on the end of a hammering whether that four or five nil by Chelsea for the ball to really start rolling and then to start picking up momentum um, I do think those forward players should be doing more you you want to see a bit of confidence from these players but you know the only way you can get confidence is is to actually do it and score goals for instance you know we spoke about Josh Marger earlier on in the show um, you know he probably would have been slightly anxious coming in for his Premier League debut but he gets two goals one of them on a plate which bounces off the post and you know his confidence is sky high and that might give him confidence to do something that you might not have normally tried in the next game we haven't seen that with Chelsea. We haven't seen um, any of the, the the new signings really grab games by the scruff of the neck and show what they're capable of. I mean, I think back to last season, Christian Pulisic was in and out of the side for a bit. He had a, a hamstring injury and then I think he scored a hat-trick against Burnley one game. And then all of a sudden, you know, he was the best player in the Chelsea team for a couple of months just because he got, kind of got that confidence boost from that. So... I don't know whether we're kind of waiting for Chelsea to explode and erupt or whether it will just be slow and steady and finishing in the top four um, come the end of the season. Because if you do look at the the Premier League table, uh, Chelsea are one of a number of clubs who have won 11 games this season. Liverpool, Chelsea, West Ham, Everton uh, and Aston Villa and Spurs as well have all won 11 games this season. So, you know, with Liverpool having played a game more, you know, there's a, there's a chance for Chelsea now uh, to try and capitalise on that and get themselves you know, into the top four and try and cement themselves there. Three wins in a row, can't be sniffed at. It's been slow and steady for Tuchel, but I guess that's kind of what Chelsea wanted and what Chelsea needed. I don't know whether people were expecting him to come in and play this absolutely gut-busting football of, of like completely intense, just smashing teams four and five all over the place. It hasn't quite been like that, but I guess Chelsea don't really care as long as they're winning, at least at this moment in time. And maybe next season is when we'll start to see the real fruits of any labour. I think that's the expectation now, isn't it? That a new manager comes in and instantly changes the team's style and fans now, because it's so based on what you see on a highlights package more than actually the results on the table or what you see when you're watching a game, they expect those four, five, six goal thrillers week in, week out. But it feels like it's a much longer term project for Tuchel at Chelsea. I think we will see the goals coming, but he's going through his squad and the style of play quite systematically. One final question on this is, I guess it's not about the game so much as the future of Billy Gilmore, who we expected to go out on loan during the January transfer window. Apparently the new manager's seen enough of him in training to want him to stay around with the first team squad. All season we've been talking about the lack of opportunities for youth players in that Chelsea team compared to what came the season before. Billy Kilmore seems like one of the great big potential players in the league for years to come. Are we going to end up having the same conversations about him, Marley, as we've had around Phil Foden for the last couple of years, i.e. talent versus game time, that he is this great promise, but there's too much pressure on Chelsea as a team to risk playing him almost? Um, I don't know. I'd love to see the future and see what it holds for him, but... You know, when he broke onto the scene, he, he proved that he was good enough to, to hold himself in Premier League games, I think. And I can't remember if it was against last season where he, he just um, he completely bossed the game. He was like the orchestrator of everything Chelsea did. He was the, the man the, the defence passed it to to start the moves. And he was the one who would create everything for them um, in a couple of games. But, you know, I think he does need games. Um, I think it's too early to say he needs to go out on loan or he needs to leave to get first team football because I still think he's very very young um, I don't think he's quite at Foden's sort of hype level um, because it, every time Foden played whether it was 20 minutes or 90 minutes or 15 here and there he would always have a massive impact on the game and I don't think I think Gilmore plays in a slightly different position to one that can be so impactful I think mm. when you put Foden on off the bench he can score you a goal or do a dribble and open up a defence and stuff like that whereas Gilmore's more of a, a 90 minutes player as in he'll control the tempo of games rather than come on and, and nick you a goal or an assist or something like that so I think the um, the impact either player can have is, is slightly different and in terms of expectations that 
that goes a long way of, of forming them. But he's also Scottish, not English, which kind of tempers that expectation. <laughs> he's not a young English talent, which instantly makes everybody get overexcited. Yeah, and I think I don't think Scotland's uh, senior team have capped him yet, which is bizarre considering how much um, they would probably need him. Um, but yeah, he's um, he's he's certainly a talent, and yeah, Chelsea need to not close the door on him very quickly because at the minute they've got Kovacic and Jorginho as first choice and then Kante as well. Um, and then all of a sudden he's fourth choice even in that centre midfield role. Um, I, I don't know what formation Chelsea are going to end up playing going forward or where he fits into that, but um, it's I think it's important that Tuchel says, um, you know, I, I can't forget about this this kid, even though he's, he's young. He's, he could be the future, mm. he could be something else. We know what Chelsea's youth team have produced in the past they've produced some right players so um you know it's not a something that is um that should be just given up on the chelsea game is the late kickoff tonight west ham is the earlier one starts at six o'clock that's it for our game previews but we're going to look back at the weekend next as niall and marley pick their heroes and villains from the weekend's premier league action we'll wrap up the podcast with that next on football social daily Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back. Final bit of Football Social Daily. It's all about the good and the bad, the light and the dark, the heroes and the villains from the weekend. I've asked Marley and Niall both to pick their heroes and their villains from the Premier League games just gone, you can go first, Niall. Who is your hero? Uh, from a fantasy football perspective, it's a Bamiyang because I've had him in my team since the very start of the season and <laughs> well, he's been still got useless him. and I've kept him in. I've kept the faith. I thought he's too good to go off the boil for this long. Anyway, six months later, finally, he's returning some of the goods. Um, so from a fantasy perspective, it'd be old Pierre. From a uh, just a normal perspective, I guess, my hero um, of the weekend was Pedro Neto. Uh, for Wolverhampton Wanderers with a late winner um, to put Mm. Southampton away. Uh, That's now no win for Southampton in the Premier League since uh, Ralph Hasenhurtl dropped to his knees and cried over the fact that his side beat Liverpool, who are now fourth in the Premier League table and uh, dropping like an absolute stone. So um, Pedro Neto, we spoke about him um, on Friday's podcast and we talked him up and said about how how good he is. Uh, I really like him, really impressed by him as a player, 20 years old, shown plenty of quality, plenty of hunger and desire. He's got a nouse about him and the way he scored that goal against Southampton, you know, you know, laughing and joking, obviously, because I'm a Portsmouth fan and it condemned them to defeat. But you've got to give credit to him just simply for the quality of the goal. The way he took on a couple of players, dragged the ball to the byline, and somehow created an angle with himself uh, for for himself to, to dispatch the ball past the goalkeeper. Um, a brilliant piece of individual skill, shows supreme confidence. And I just wonder with the season that Wolves are having, where they would actually be without him, because they've had a they've had a poor some season. Important goals, doesn't he? He really does score some important goals, and he just performs week in week out. Um, he's always there on the end of it when when you're looking for someone to chase something. He's happy to drop a little bit deeper and collect the ball and and run into dangerous areas and dangerous space, spaces. And he's a really nice bloke to boot. Um, I've seen a couple of interviews with him um, recently. Uh, and he seems to be really happy with his life in uh, in the Midlands and just settling into life. His English is really good for a 20-year-old. So impressive as an overall character. I really like him. Um, I think he's got a really bright future in the game. Whether he stays at Wolves for much longer remains to be seen because if you think of the way that Diogo Jota was kind of um, plundered from uh, Wolves by Liverpool and, and you think of some of the other players that have kind of moved on from Wolves like Doherty to Tottenham Hotspur, no offence to Wolves but they're still kind of a middle-of-the-road Premier League club in terms of st- size, stature um, and prestige, let's just say. So Pedro Neto, if he keeps performing the way he's performing and scoring goals like that, then uh, Absolutely, I think he could get snapped up by a real European heavyweight in the years to come because that was an excellent goal um, and for me the moment of the weekend in terms of goal scoring. So yeah, my hero would be Pedro Neto from Wolves. I always forget how young he is as well. Nart Marley, who's your hero? Uh, my hero is um, somebody you probably wouldn't expect to be talking about on Monday's review of the Action podcast. Um, Matt Loughton from Burnley. Um, oh, yeah. who seemed to turn into a prime cafu at the weekend uh, against Crystal <laughs> Palace and scored the one, one of the most ridiculous goals I've ever seen. Absolutely brilliant goal. 
um, to to wrap up Burnley's three 0 win. It was like a five aside goal, Gee, wasn't it? Yeah, it was mad. Uh, he picked it up and he was just like, right, all right, I'm just gonna go for this. And my favourite part of it was not the volley um, that that finished off the movie. It was the way he absolutely bounced through Patrick Van Arnold. <laughs> Um, yeah. on the edge of the box because he was coming through at full pace and Van Aanholt was basically a rabbit in the headlights um, and instead of, if Matt Loughton was the car instead of the car swerving the car thought I'm going to plough right through you and just blasted right through him put Van Aanholt on his backside and even had the the composure and the technique and the talent to uh, to smash the uh, the volley past um, the goalkeeper but the ball back to him was brilliant and you're thinking is a right back good enough to to finish this? You know, he'll probably take a touch and try and square it or something. And he's, instead, he just hammers it in, and it was a a brilliant goal. And it even um, I think on match of the day, they even showed what I think it was his last Premier League goal, which was a thirty yard volley for Aston Villa against Stoke. Um, so yeah, <laughs> well, he doesn't score many, but when he does, the the goal of the season contenders absolutely brilliant goal. It's like Matty Taylor. Remember oh, Matty Taylor, yeah. who Legend. didn't oh. score many, but every time he scored a goal, it was an absolute He scored worldie. a few more, though, didn't he? He scored five or six a season then, and four of them were absolute mm. worldies, weren't they? So, yeah. He scored two volleys in the same season from the halfway line, on the half volley. No, one of them was a full <laughs> volley against Sunderland, yeah. the other one was a half volley against Everton, or the other way around, I can't remember. Unbelievable goal. I mean, he was smashing the ball on the volley from the halfway line, over, over goalkeepers' heads and into the back of the net. He scored free kicks for Portsmouth and Bolton. Yeah, oh, he was an awesome player. Uh, underrated, I think, as well, in terms of his ability to change a game with scoring goals like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he could have had his own goal of the season competition at one point. Love Matty Taylor. Yeah, he was a quality player. Good tattoos as well. I think he had a tattoo sleeve before He was at West Ham for years. I always forget how he long was, he was at yeah, West Ham, Jim. He was. Uh, let's move on to villains of the year then. I'm going to let you go first on this one, Marley, because... Of the year? Of the, of the Sorry, villain of the weekend, I should say. I'm going to let you go first. Newcastle <laughs> Also haven't played yet, so you can't pick Steve Bruce. So I don't know what you're going to do. Mad, isn't it? Um, I've, I'm at a loss. Um, yeah, to be fair, I think if if we were doing villain of the year, my villain of the week could also be villain of the year because it's <laughs> um, it's Allison um, from Liverpool, <laughs> and just another blunder um, at the weekend. Obviously, you know I've I've watched the the mistake that led to Vardy's goal against Leicester, and I, for for a while I was working out, you know. Whose fault is it? Um, is it Kabak? Is it the pair of them for not shouting? Um, is it Allison? And I think I'm I'm fully down in the Allison camp now, mm. um, of of it being his mistake because, you know, Kabak's new and also he's new to the team. It's his debut, um, first time he's ever played in front of Allison. Um, he's coming off the he's coming from a club that lost, um, that were un, un uh, didn't win in thirty games in Schalke. Um, over the course of this season and, and last season as well, um, and I think you have to understand that a little bit as a goal, <clears throat> excuse me, as a goalkeeper, and not come for things that might sort of cause him issues. Do you know what I mean? So probably not take out centre back either. I mean that's never a great thing to do, is it? Just to take never the centre back out the equation. <laughs> never a good thing. Um, yeah, I mean I know sweeper keepers are part of the game and stuff, but I think if that that ball's bouncing. And it's bouncing away from goal. I think is is the striker isn't in on goal. I think it's Barnes, isn't it? But um, he's not in on goal. It's not a one on one. If you if you leave that ball, I think Kavak's probably just going to chase him into the corner um, or towards the byline and, and shepherd him out a little bit while defenders come back. So, but instead, Allison, you know, he's thinking, well, I had a bad game this week, uh, last week. I'll be fine this week, and he's come running out. And it's just when that confidence is a bit low. Um, but a bit lower than it was, and then you, you know, you're in that kind of vein of form when things don't go well, um, all the time for you. I think little things are going against Liverpool, and it's costing them big. Mm. Like that decision cost them massively because that was, that was the game. That was the, it was one one at the time, and then that mistake makes it two one. Then Liverpool have got to go chase the game, and they're open on the counter attack to the third goal. Um, so that's um, that basically cost them again, and that's two weeks in a row now, where he's made. I think three mistakes. Um, in if you take both ones against City and then the one against Leicester, uh, three mistakes, loads of goals conceded, and they're they're out, well out of the title race now. I think there was an element of like almost over enthusiasm in trying to make up for the mistakes he made last week, maybe, yeah. and that caused him to get overexcited, overcommit, and 
force the error against Leicester City. But Jurgen Klopp conceding the title now as well. He says Manchester City have won it. Who's your villain then? Now wrap this up for us. Got a Liverpool double today, gents. I'm afraid it's Mohamed Salah. Um, and I say this with a little bit of disappointment because I actually really like Salah. Uh, I love the way he plays the game. I actually like him uh, off the field as well. I think he's um, been quite bullish in the way he's kind of spoken on social media in the light of Liverpool's recent performances, saying that, you know, Liverpool are champions and they'll fight like champions till the end and they're not going to let these recent results uh, define the entire season. And he says it's his promise that he's going to come out fighting and swinging and deliver. Um, And he has done so. Only Robert Lewandowski this season scored more goals than Mohamed Salah. Um, And he's been one of the top strikers in world football for a long time now, Robert Lewandowski. So it just goes to show, you know, he's still with 17 goals, the Premier League's top goal scorer. So many positive things about Mo Salah, and I want to make sure that I get those out there before I say this. But he does fall to the ground very, very easily. Very, very, very easily. And you, you said that as if it was like a controversial statement that he falls over to the ground easily. It's like that's something you just spotted that no one else had seen before. <laughs> it was a windy day in Leicester at the weekend. <laughs> but this weekend it's happened again, lads. You know, it's not the first time. And No, this time Liverpool don't think they did get a penalty for the alleged salad dive and you know this is a debate we can have in a podcast in itself diving is it cheating or is it just part of the game you're a professional footballer your job and Mohamed Salah's job is to win his side football matches by scoring goals um but he's better let's, than let's have that debate because it is cheating right is it yeah yeah it is yeah if it's you're cheating. trying to con the referee it's cheating which which is exactly what they're doing in these but you scenarios. can still con the referee and there be contact right or is that not conning the referee anymore because think, the, the decisions over the last couple of weeks where Salah's thrown himself to the ground so easily, but there has been contact. So does that technically still count as a dive? Is it cheating if there's contact? So, I mean, this is the grey area I'm talking about. Ooh. I understand what you're saying because I agree with it. But I also understand the other side of the coin, which is how can it be a dive and how can it be cheating if he has actually been kicked? No matter how light the contact, you know, oh, it's not enough to be a penalty. Well, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? But... That is kind of why he's my villain, I suppose. There's, there's no point of me choosing him as a villain without kind of agreeing what you're both saying. He does get to the ground very, very easily and it's just frustrating. And it's frustrating that he does it all the time. And it is genuinely a facet of his game. Like, you know, you talk about his strengths and weaknesses. One of his strengths is winning penalties and going down in the mm-hmm. box. You know, he's, he's a quality player. He's a top football player. But it's just frustrating that you see him do it all the time. And I guess we need to become you know, used to it now with when we're watching Salah. And that's a sad thing, really, because he's so good that he doesn't need to do it. You know, you have to say, is that good play from Salah to convince the referee that there's been enough contact to award a penalty? Or is it quite simply, like you boys say, is it cheating? So, yeah, I mean, it's a debate we could have. Is it cheating or not? It depends on the contact. And then we're in grey areas again. And then the whole debate about VAR gets dragged into it, which we won't have. But yeah, Salah would be my villain for that. I mean, like I say, it's tinged with reluctancy and disappointment but he would be my villain this weekend I think I think the frustration for me with the whole diving thing and it's not it's not something that is unique to Mo Salah obviously it happens right across of the course. league we've seen players doing it for years as well I remember the same accusations being put to Ashley Young probably a decade ago now when he was playing for United but is when there is an opportunity to stay on your feet and score a goal and the striker in question takes the option to go to the floor that is the element of it that I find really frustrating and I don't really fully understand I can kind of get it if you're going nowhere if you're heading to the corner of the box and you haven't got the opportunity and you feel contact you kind of go down because you're you're hedging your bets it's when there is the opportunity to rifle one in that I find it really frustrating yeah I mean it's annoying that's that's all that the only reason that I've put him as a villain is because it's starting to annoy me it's becoming more talked about the fact that Salah throws himself to the ground than how good a player he is. And it should never be that way. So that, that's why he's a villain for me this week. And that wraps up today's podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with a look back at the games that are being played tonight. If you came here looking for a review of the weekend's action, well, you're probably a little bit disappointed by now, but you can go and check out yesterday's podcast well done for with Fergal and the boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you don't, you wasted an hour of your life. We're Take not a look at yourselves. You've had a, you've no, had a praise not. for Burnley. Everything. Everything, everything you want in this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but you can go and find a review of all the weekend's action on the timeline. It was yesterday's podcast. Came out yesterday evening with Fergal and the lads. Go and check that out. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time for Football Social Daily. 
Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Instagram at Sports Social Official. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.